My name is King David. Like most old men, my main hobby these days is looking back. One day my son Solomon will be ruler, and he should know that though his father accomplished much, he did so only through the grace of our Lord and with the help of his friends. I call them my friends, but they're better known as David's mighty men. As king, I've accomplished some great things, but even I marvel at the feats of these noble and humble warriors. Let's go back a few decades. We're at the height of our conflict with the Philistines. These savages have one overarching goal, to kill all of my people, the Israelites. I'm assembling an army to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. We have a noble cause, fulfilling God's plan to bring peace to our land. And I suppose good men will sign up to fight for a noble cause, because hundreds of the nation's finest fighting men stepped forward, and none was finer than Benaiah. This man was no ordinary soldier. Sure, I had some experience taking down a giant myself, but this fellow once took down two monstrous opponents in Moab. It hardly surprised me because Benaiah's combat skills were truly unmatched. Another time he was attacked by an enormous Egyptian wielding a spear. Lesser men would have cowered at the sight, but not Benaiah. He calmly grabbed a stick, quickly disarmed the attacker, and stabbed him with his own weapon. Truly amazing feats, yet there's more. For months, a lion had been plundering Benaiah's village, devouring cattle and endangering the townsfolk. Some men dug a pit and waited to trap the beast. Finally, on a snowy winter day, the animal lumbered into town and fell in. Roaring angrily, the enraged cat clawed at the dirt walls. It was progressing in his escape when Benaiah, fed up with the trespasser, jumped into the hole and slayed the lion all by himself with just his bare hands and a blade. To say I took notice is an understatement. I'd never seen such courage, and I knew I'd found my new chief bodyguard and the leader of my security team. Regardless of the threats around me, I slept well, knowing the fearless Benaiah was by my side. It has been an honor to serve alongside this mighty man ever since. Today, as we continue in Lionhearted, we are going to look at a character in the Bible maybe you've never heard of before. His name is Benaiah, and he is known for his courage. And today we're going to talk about what courage is and how it combats fear in our life. Because courage comes from living for something bigger than yourself. And to find something bigger than yourself, the Bible says that you need an identity anchored in something that actually doesn't fluctuate. And when you have an identity anchored in something that doesn't fluctuate, now your job, the people around you, you're not using them to shore up your own identity. Because you have an identity that's secure, you can now use your relationships and opportunities to serve other people. Because courage is living for something bigger than yourself. You're not using that thing in order to serve yourself. 
Maybe you've heard the acronym of FEAR. F-E-A-R. Fear comes from false expectations appearing real. False expectations appearing real. You see it in many ways. See, if you need your identity, you need your title, you need a relationship to feel like you are somebody, you're going to have incredible fear of failure. Because it's not just I might fail in this opportunity or fail in this moment. My whole identity is at stake. And that's why it's hard to be courageous when your whole identity is at stake. Well, that's a false expectation appearing real. And because your whole identity is at stake, you end up, or if you haven't done this, you've seen somebody who does this. I've done it and seen it. You start overthinking everything, overanalyzing everything. Because, oh my goodness, if we make a mistake, I'm going to be embarrassed, this is going to happen. And all of a sudden, the fear creeps in, you overanalyze and paralysis analysis. Other times, you hear it in a really positive way. You'll hear about the politician who's thinking about their legacy. How will this affect their legacy, right? And so every decision they make is about their legacy. And it sounds like they're living for something bigger than themselves, but they're not. In fact, they can't make great decisions, good decisions, because the whole time they're thinking about, how am I going to be perceived by the voice of history? The legacy is really another way of saying they're living for self. The people who actually left a great legacy weren't focused on their legacy, They were courageous enough to make decisions unrelated to their legacy, and therefore they achieved a legacy. It's the boss who's so scared uh, of losing control, so scared of something taking their job, that they're just so insecure. They can't give away credit, can't give away authority, can't give away power, and the whole organization is, is landlocked by their fear and insecurity. See, lion-hearted leaders... They know how to win a name for themselves by not trying to win a name for themselves. A lion-hearted leader who's courageous wins a name for themselves because they are not about winning a name for themselves. Aren't the people who just strike you in your life, the people who've influenced you, the people you, you look up to, the people who want a name for themselves, what struck you about them is they weren't about themselves the whole time. So I want to give you three aspects of courage that will help you to win a name for yourself by not trying to win a name for yourself. Let's look at these three aspects together in hopes that you can have courage to face maybe the deeper fears that are driving why you're afraid to begin with. Let's look at the first one together. Winning a name for yourself means having the courage to to make it not about yourself. And that's actually not particularly easy to do. In fact, the main message of the Bible is there is a God who could have made it all about himself, but when he came to earth, he did the opposite. He actually continued to serve, to care, to sacrifice, to look out for other people. And and he ends up making a movement that transforms history. He wins a name for himself on a cross simply because he didn't make his whole life about himself. Will you and I have the courage to win a name for ourselves by living a life that's not about ourselves. Because that's what Benaiah did. Let me introduce you to Benaiah. He actually is one of David's 37 mighty men. And within the 37, there's three of the honorable men. And Benaiah almost makes it to the three, but not quite. Here's what it says. Abishah, the brother of Joab, the son of Zerifah, was chief of another three. He lifted up his spear against 300 men. He killed them and won a name among these three. 
So here's a guy who took on 300 men at once and won a name among himself by defending, by protecting. And you might say, well, this Chad's why I don't believe the Bible. There's no way one person could take on 300 men. And like five weeks ago, you mentioned taking on 800 men. Well, if you look through history, there are many people, mighty warriors who are able to battle hundreds of people. But they're smart enough. It's not like, you know, the Matrix where you're taking on, you know, a, a, a hundred Agent Smiths at the same time. They were smart enough to go, if I got 300 guys coming at me, I'm going to go find a crack. I'm going to go find a spot in the rock where they got to come at me one at a time. So that way I don't have to kill 300 men. I only have to kill one. Next one comes over the top. One, one, one. So these were master strategists. And this guy wins a name for himself by taking on 300 people who are trying to destroy a village. But then it mentions Benaiah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kebzeel. Now here's what he's known for. Wherever someone's in trouble, whenever someone is being attacked by these terrorists of the day named the Philistines, he is there to serve, to protect, and to look out for others. He ends up winning a name for himself because his whole life is about not serving himself. In fact, to keep track of our characters, I've been trying to give you little, little pictures to go with it each week. So we have Abishai, who defeats the 300, and then Benaiah, who's going to end up in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Now, isn't it true in history, as well as your life, that the people who serve others, who aren't about making a legacy, are the ones who make the biggest legacy? Maybe you've been watching this, uh, this show on HBO about Chernobyl. So I'm watching this movie with my wife, and while we're doing it, we're, we're actually following along in history. Like, is that, that, well, that really, wow, that, that happened. So as we're kind of checking the facts on this thing, amazing, amazing story. Chernobyl melts down. Horrible. The, the, the fir- initial meltdown was like 200 nuclear bomb force going off. And they think they're safe. Suddenly they realize that the reactor number four is still melting down. And it's going to melt through the concrete slab underneath it. And they realize that if they don't turn off the water supply under that concrete slab, it's going to go off and be an even bigger explosion that's going to make the whole country of Ukraine uninhabitable for a century. But in order to get through the labyrinth of tubes and canals, somebody's got to go into the already melted down Chernobyl nuclear site with radiation levels that have already killed many, many. And they've got to go into this radiation water to go find the right valve to keep a bigger explosion occurring that's going to destroy an entire country. And they asked for volunteers. Volunteers! Three guys stepped in. One was a mechanical engineer. Another was a supervisor. Another person was just a person who worked at the site. And they volunteered, knowing this was the end of their life. And they didn't say to themselves, you know what, one day history is going to say to me, these were the brave men who made it. They just said, it's not about me. I'm trying to save my friends, my family, and my countrymen. They put on a wetsuit, and they've got a Geiger counter. And as they're just driving to get close to the nuclear reactor, you can hear They get out of the car. They put on the wetsuits. They get closer to the water. They start stepping into the water. I mean, it is going off the charts with radiation. And they step into the water. And they make their way through a labyrinth trying to find one valve 
The supervisor said, I had to volunteer. I was one of the few people who knew how to find the needle in the haystack. And they made their way down. And you're like, these people are never, ever, ever going to live again. And they make their way down and they find the valve and they empty out the water that would have reacted with that nuclear reactor when it melted down. 48 hours later, instead of blowing up, they're able to stop the second explosion. And amazingly, as we were doing some research watching the show, my wife and I, all three of them not only survived, two of them are still alive today. One of them died in 2005, and they have an incredible legacy of of rescuing a nation, being incredibly courageous, going into the worst of the worst circumstances, not because it's like, oh, one day I have a legacy. No, they want a name for themselves by not living for themselves. How often are you willing to step into the waters of a difficult season of your marriage and say, I'm going to keep serving, keep committing, keep being faithful, when it's not fun right now to be married? How often are you going to be one that steps into the water to say, hey, we're trying to share the responsibilities of caring for mom and dad. It's a very difficult time. But you know what? They're needing additional care. And, you know, I'm trying to be the sandwich generation. i got teenagers on this side. But, you know, I'm going to step into the water. It's not about myself. I'm going to keep making it not about myself. When your kids are going through difficult times, and it's not particularly fun to be a parent right now because they're rebelling and they're getting involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. And you're, you're just so worried at night. But are you willing to step into the water? Because that's the whole nature of parenting, isn't it? Are you courageous enough to say, whew, the legacy of me being a good parent is going to be about me not making it, about being a good parent? Faithfully, courageously, winning a name for yourself by not making it about yourself. The second thing we see about Benaiah is he has enough courage not to coast on stale stories. You know, we've all got some incredible thing we're known for that we accomplished, Right? But courage is refusing to coast on the stale stories of the past to say, yeah, I might fail if I try something again. I like what I'm known for, but I want fresh stories, fresh encounters, fresh memories of what I'm doing that's causing me to face fear and take new hills and grab new manes. And we're introduced to Maniah and his family in this passage. We hear about his dad. Here's what it says. Maniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kebziel, who had done many deeds. So he's got a family line of, wow, this is the family that does many mighty deeds. But he, Benaiah, had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Two Goliaths he's already killed. Check. Grandpa did amazing things. Check. I've done amazing things. But he didn't coast on those stale stories. He also had gone down and killed a lion... That's pretty amazing. In the midst of a pit, oh, on a snowy day. Now notice the past tense, had done, had killed. In one sense, grandpa got him up to here. Dad got him up to here. And then he's like, oh, I killed two lion-like heroes. Wow, I'm known for this. Have you seen my card? Killed two lion-like heroes. But he refused to just coast and go, you know what? Whew. I think that's it. That's what I'm going to be known for. When I was in my 30s, I really did amazing things. When I was in my 40s, I really made an amazing company. Wow, I really did a great job with my kids when they were teenagers. Now it's just relax time. Do you have the courage to not coast on stale stories from the past? Enough that even though he took on two lion-like warriors in the past... One day a lion gets loose in the village. Terrorizing animal and livestock, 
going after families and friends, people he knows and doesn't know. And somebody says, somebody's got to get that lion out of here. He could say, hey, listen, I took care of two life warriors. I think it's somebody else's turn. But no, he doesn't coast. I'm going out there. He goes out there to defend the people of the village. He chases that lion. Lion's running away. Chases that thing down. Gets maybe out of town. And boom, 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 boom. The lion falls into a pit. At that point, I'd be like, somebody else can take it from here. I'll be sitting on my lion-like throne back in uh, town. I got it out of here. But it's in a pit. When I'm sitting in that pit, eyeball to eyeball with that lion, he looks at the lion, the lion looks at him, and he thinks that lion might get out of this pit. And the people back in the village might still be in danger. If I really want to make sure people are safe, I've got to make sure that lion can't get them. And as he's thinking about that, as he's meditating on that, all of a sudden, it starts to snow. Really? Really? You ever been in that circumstance where you're in a difficult thing, you've already made a choice to sacrifice, to serve, to help, to step into the deeper waters, and then it gets worse? Really? Really, universe? Really, God? It's snowing. I mean, the one thing you don't want to do, I would imagine, I'm no lion expert, but I would imagine when I'm in a slippery pit, I don't want there to be ice around when I'm trying to, to fight the lion. There's so many reasons why he could go home. So many reasons why he could just rest on the previous stories. But instead he goes, eyeball to eyeball at the lion. We got to take care of this to make sure people are safe. He comes up to that pit and he jumps down into the pit with hand-to-hand combat. He kills off that lion. Like many of the warriors that we read about in history, including the Bible. Are you willing to take on fresh challenges? Are you courageous enough not just to live on what you used to do or what you are known for because there's a chance you might fail? Oh, oh, okay, better not then. My reputation's on the line. I'd rather rest on the reputation I have than maybe maybe lose something with something new. Are you willing to take on lion-like warriors one day and an actual lion in a pit on a snowy day the next? I think the story of Benaiah is so powerful because it challenges you and I to say, are we willing to grab life by the mane and say, what's next? What's next? For our 25-year anniversary, my wife and I went to Hawaii last year, and we had a great experience. And while we are going around Maui, we got this book called Maui Revealed. It's like some magazine's been out there for years, and it tells you all the secret things to do in Maui. And so we're driving along this one section, and we park, and they said, there's these incredible pools if you hike down. So we hike, 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 all the way down. And it is amazing. We're swimming in these pools, feel like we're in a movie. But man, the terrain was tough, and we had sandals on. Like, by the time we got back up there, you know, Beth's got the little ribbon going between the big toe. Like, oh my goodness, I wish I'd brought some tennis shoes. So we had a great time. We're flying back on the plane, and my wife's had two back surgeries. So again, I appreciate the prayers, and it was a real challenge. It's still a challenge, but it was a horrible challenge last year at this time. And so I bought her a seat up in first class. I'm sitting back in the slum seats. And so I, I, came, up, I came up to say, hi, hey, honey, what's it like up here? And I got one of those seats you could lay down in. I'm like, man, this is kind of nice. And like, I paid for this thing. The, the stewardess was like, I'm sorry, sir, you don't have a seat. Hi, I paid for that. So they scurry me out of there. And so I went up a little bit later, snuck past the stewardesses to say hi to my wife. 
And she said, you're not going to believe this, but I was seated next to a guy, and I told him about our time going down to see the pools. And I said, yeah, it was really great. I just wish I'd wore tennis shoes. He said, well, why didn't you? It's kind of a weird thing to say. She goes, well, I just didn't know to. She goes, well, how did you know about them? Oh, I read this book called Maui Revealed. He said, well, that book tells you to wear shoes. He's like, I don't think it does. He, he picks it up. Wear tennis shoes. The terrain can be very bad. He then says, you know how I know that? I said, no. He says, I wrote the book. And then he began to tell an incredible story about grabbing life by the mane. He goes, for years, we've written these these four to five books that I go back and I update, tweak, 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 and they become very, very popular. But, you know, I got a staff working for me. It's about 10, 15 years younger than me. And I wonder, do I still have what it takes to do a brand new city in a brand new place? And I tell you, I was scared. I was scared. I got a reputation for being successful with these Maui books and these, you know, Hawaii books. I thought, what if I started from scratch? And so this last year... Instead of sending somebody else on my team, I went to Las Vegas, and I began to say, what are the things that people don't know about you can do in Las Vegas? He said, and it was, it was the adventure of a lifetime. You talk about grabbing life by the mane. I mean, I found out I still got it, and I found out there's amazing things to do in, a, in a Las Vegas. He said, there's actually a place you can get on a helicopter with a machine gun. You can shoot across the desert. There's a place you can actually drive a literal tank. He goes, I'm putting this whole thing together. It's now all digital. I'm working with my team of 20- and 30-year-olds. It has been so invigorating. Not to just coast on what I have done, the success I did have, but to grab life by the mane and tackle new territory. One of the opportunities I have is I work with all of our speakers, the guest speakers that come in, the speakers here on staff, and we do constant coaching of our communication. In fact, I'll talk to many people who attend our church. I'll say, hey, you want some, some speaking coaching? I'll say, what's kind of your method? I say, well, I have people come in who work at local colleges and they'll critique me before a message. Every week after I speak, I got a group of five people on 20 categories that critique me of every message. Really? I say, yeah, don't you want to, as a communicator, don't you want to communicate your best messages next week, next year, next month? We, we insulate ourselves from feedback, and people are like, oh, pretty good, pretty good. You read your PowerPoint to us. It was there on the screen. You read it to us. We got it. All right, yeah, well, I, I, a little higher standard than your ability to read a PowerPoint. And you have people in your life who are saying, you know what, I'm not sure you should be using a teleprompter. It doesn't let you emotionally engage with the audience or whatever it is. You have people who are challenging you to take on new, new mains, to grab life by the main, to be courageous enough not to just sit on your accolades of your stale stories. I talked to a friend last night. He's an architect, partner. He's got a nonprofit that he loves that he's been part of for many, many years, and they're going through a very, very challenging time. And they asked him if he'd be willing to step up and kind of lead the end of the spear to this very big challenge. It's like, he said, I really feel called to do this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I've been in situations like this. This is going to be hard and difficult and not fun for a long time before it gets fun. He's like, I know, but I want to be part of that kind of work. Do you have the courage... Not to rest and coast on stale stories, but to say, I want to take on the new challenges before me. Because that's what Benaiah did. And that's what God did. God could sit up in heaven. Those human beings really screwed things up. No, he stepped into the game. He stepped into history. And he stepped in during a time when crucifixion was in vogue. And allowed himself to be crucified to show how much he loved and cared for us. In fact, if this story of Benaiah captures your attention... About 10 years ago, I read a book all about it. It's called In a Pit, 
with a lion on a snowy day by Mark Patterson. And it is such a challenge. And if you want to be challenged in your life, it's a great book to read, to challenge yourself on these very things. So, are you willing to have the courage to not make it about yourself? Do you have the courage to not coast? But thirdly, and this is, I just think, an incredible insight from Benaiah. When you need that thing, whatever that thing is, to be someone. You know, I will be someone if I get that territory. I will be someone if I get that territory or that title. I'll be someone if my kids are obedient. If your whole identity is tied up in winning a name for yourself, it's always going to be about self. And what the Bible offers is that God will give you a name. And when you're given a name from someone, it's so much better than winning a name to be someone. Because you are so much more than whatever you win a name for. You're so much more than that title. So much more than that number on your bank account. You're so much more than your kid's behavior. You're so much more. And if you take that thing and that thing determines you being someone, you're never going to be satisfied. The Bible says that instead, the king of the universe wants to give you a name. Rather than winning a name, look at all the things I did, God, look how good person I am, look at all the religion I did, and because of all the things I did, I'm now someone. God said, no, no, my son came to earth. He died for all those things, good and bad. And I now will give you a name that you're a son and daughter of the king of the universe. And when you let him give you a name, and that anchors your identity, everything else you do will subordinate itself to that. And in that, you can then go, you know, I don't like that my kids are going through a difficult time. I don't like this challenging time in my family. But God, thank you that it doesn't define who I am. And here in Benaiah, we see this contrast between winning a name and being given a name. And aren't you sometimes tired of winning a name? In fact, it keeps you from wanting to do new things because, oh my goodness, if I fail again, oh, am I going to lose what I've already got? Don't make that thing the definition of who you are to be someone. Instead, the king of the universe wants to give you a name. Look what happens here with Benaiah. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit of a snowy day. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and he won a name among the three mighty men. So he won a name, but it wasn't quite as high as the first three. There's always going to be somebody smarter than you with more money than you, with a bigger territory than you. Doesn't mean you don't work hard. Doesn't mean you can't achieve great things. But there's always going to be somebody who you didn't quite win a name. However, he got something better than winning a name to be the top three of the 37. The king noticed him. Wow. King David said, guy jumps in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. That guy's going to be the chief of the army. He's going to be my armed guard. And the king gives him a name. Let me show you the difference between needing something to be someone versus having an identity given to you by someone. There's a great scene of this in Rocky, the original Rocky. Remember, he's talking to, uh, to Adrian. He's like, Adrian! Oh, that was the third movie. Adrian! Why are you doing this, Rocky? Why are you doing this, Rocky? Because I just got to go the distance. I just got to go the distance. Because if I can just go the distance, I'm going to prove to all those people I'm not a bum. Right? So is he enjoying boxing? Not really. What's his motivation? I got to prove to everybody if I can go the distance, I'm not a bum. 
His whole identity is wrapped up in going the distance. And thank goodness by the movie he went the distance. Or what happens? We wouldn't watch any more movies. He'd be a bum. Arnold Schwarzenegger's a bum. He didn't go the distance, right? When you attach your identity to what you win or don't win, you're setting yourself up for failure. Your soul is too deep. And even though you win for a long time, you're eventually going to stop trying things that are too hard because you've attached your identity. Or things outside your control, like how your kids behave, defines who you are. And oh my goodness, you can no longer control them. And you're like, oh, who am I? I'm that parent I criticized all those years. So David appoints him. Something amazing happens. Though he doesn't achieve the top three, what is amazing is that he gets picked not only as the secretary of army, but he gets picked as the one who guards David's son, Solomon. When he appoints his son, Solomon, to take over, everybody's trying to kill him. And you know, he turns to Benaiah. I want Benaiah to be the one who guards my son. I'm going to name you secretary of army and the defender of my family. Here's what happens. It's in the book of Chronicles. The priest took a horn of oil. They're about to anoint. They would put oil over a new king's head. That's what's happening here. So the priest took a horn of oil and he anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. And look who? And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, made him ride on the king's mule, and the king put Benaiah in place over the army. He goes from personal bodyguard to secretary of army. Now here's a little test to see if you've taken some good thing and made it an ultimate thing. If you've taken some title, some position, some good thing you want, and you've turned it into the source of your identity. What happens if it gets taken away? Are you disappointed? Of course. Or are you devastated? See, if something's your identity, you're devastated. If something's not your identity, but it's important, you're very, very, very disappointed. And that's a good test to see whether or not what you're wrestling with has become the definition. And will you have enough courage, like Benaiah did, to say, I'm not winning a name with this to be someone. I need something from out of this world that gives me a name I can anchor my identity to. Several months ago, I reached out to a friend. His name's Mark Green. When I met him years ago, he was a congressman at the state level in Tennessee. I met him on a TV set. I was doing my book tour, and he was doing his book tour, and we were talking back in the green room. As we were talking, talking... I said, well, kind of, what do you, what do you, your book all about? He said, well, he's a real humble guy. He says, I was with the team that captured Saddam Hussein, and I had to guard him that night that we had him. What? Yeah, I'm a medical doctor, but, you know, you've got to make sure that he's healthy. And so I was there, and I got to interview Saddam Hussein. So if you were with us three or four years ago, you can check this on the app if you want. Um, I actually interviewed him on stage about what it was like to spend an evening in a jail cell with Saddam Hussein. Over the last year, I've been watching Mark. And Mark, I don't know if you know this, but in the last year, he actually got nominated by Trump to be the Secretary of Army. And I got to see this was the highlight of his life, and I also got to see that things did not go the way he wanted. And here's what I want you to hear. I called Mark up. I said, Mark, would you tell your story? How did you as a Christian have something you wanted so bad taken away? And how were you able to process that in your faith? Because it didn't define who you were. You could be disappointed without being devastated. And Mark recorded this just for us. Here's his story. 
of how to do exactly that. Let's watch. So my dream job was to be the Secretary of the Army, and uh, you know, the President called me up and, and nominated me to that position, and I was ecstatic. I, th I think the President picked me because of my life experiences. You know, I'd been, well, one, I was a West Point graduate, Army Ranger, uh, served in the infantry, commanded, and then went medical corps, back in the Army as a special operations physician, and I did two trips to Iraq, one to Afghanistan, so a combat veteran. Um, got out, I started a healthcare company and grew that company up to over $200 million in annual revenue, a very successful company, so I could run big organizations. And then I was a legislator, so I basically had the skills to go and leverage legislators to get them to support the Army. It had really been building in a crescendo the attacks on me, particularly on my faith, positions. Um, and so this sort of crescendo of noise in the media, and I'm not able to respond because I'm in the nomination process. And, you know, the Department of Defense didn't want me to say anything. The White House didn't want me to say anything. So you couldn't respond. So this crescendo of uh, accusations were coming out of the media. And, uh, and then I got a call from Secretary Mattis asking me to withdraw. And it was like a kick in the gut. Um, you know, here was this job, this dream job of taking care of soldiers and their families, and it was ripped away. And I went through all of the stages of loss, you know, denial, anger, um, bereavement, um, disbelief, all that stuff. And I guess the anger really was because of the false accusations. You know, for example, they said I was anti-Latino when I had been named Latinos for Tennessee's Legislator of the Year. It was tough, and I only got through it because of my faith. This method that I use, you, you have to kind of agree at the beginning when you do something like this, that you accept the premise that God is in charge, that, he, that I have surrendered my life to Him, and that He is the Lord of my life. And So whatever He shows me, uh, I have to do it. I have to believe it. So I, I basically let my Bible open up, and it just fell open to Genesis chapter 50. In Genesis chapter 50, it's the last chapter of Genesis, it's sort of the ending story of Joseph. He, of course, says some very boastful and arrogant things to his brothers, so they hate him. They actually propose killing him, taking his life, and uh, and one of the brothers convinces them not to do that. Let's, let's fake his death, so they take his coat, put blood on it, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. Goes to Pharaoh, winds up working for Pharaoh, this deity king of Egypt, and basically becomes the prime minister of, of Egypt. He's, he's running all of Egypt. Well, a famine hits the land, and his brothers, remember these are the guys who sold him into slavery, faked his death, they come to Egypt because they need food from Egypt. Joseph's response, his understanding of the sovereignty of God had a huge impact on me. What Joseph said was, well, God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So to see the hand of God in being falsely accused of rape, the hand of God in being sold by his brothers into slavery, um, to see the hand of God in all of that for a purpose, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. It blew me away. And I, the word perfect just kept coming into my head. It, it's it's going to be perfect. God's going to put us right where he wants us, and it'll be perfect. Bob Corker, our U.S. senator, decides not to run for office. And Marsha Blackburn, my congressman, decides to run for his Senate office. 
And so I jumped into the congressional race. And I had no one run against me in an open seat in, a, in, a, in an R20 Republican seat. No one ran, no other Republicans ran. I ran unopposed. God puts us exactly where he wants us. It'll be perfect. And no matter what challenge or difficulty, it has a purpose. What I loved about the story is just how honest he was about how devastating it was to lose something that meant so much to him. How was he able to then process that? Well, because he got another job. No, no, before that. In the middle of the disappointment, in the middle of the brokenness, it was, I trust that there's God in charge. And though I wanted this job, and I wanted this chance to serve others, it doesn't define me. Because he's been given a name from the God of the Bible. And everything else, as important as it is, can subordinate itself to that name. Do you have the courage to do exactly that? In fact, that's what allows us to be courageous. You're able to face the fear because of who is with you and who you're doing it for. That's our key takeaway for today. You can face the fear of failure, of things not going the way you want, of uncertainty before you, because God is with you. Your Father, the King, who has given you a name, if you will receive it, if you will accept it, you know He is with you in the middle of the challenges. And who you're doing it for is not the ungrateful person you're serving. It's not the ungrateful person you're a caregiver for who's maybe got Alzheimer's and may go through a difficult time and they're not particularly thankful when you're serving them. It's not the teenager who's saying, thank you, mom and dad, for the way you've endured my difficult, rebellious season, right? No, you're doing it for the God who gave you this identity. And over and over for the last six weeks... We've looked at the phrase that when these mighty men battle, when these mighty men attack, when they jump down into pits, it still says over and over again that the Lord gave them a great victory that day. That they were dependent not just on their talents and skills and resources, but upon the God, the ultimate king of their king, David, who was with them. In fact, there's a reoccurring idea when it comes to courage used in the Bible. It comes from Psalms. It's the idea that God is our shield. And the Hebrew shields are similar to what you might have seen in a Roman shield, is that they were, they were angled a bit. So when you had a shield, when you were moving forward, that shield protected you, and slightly to the left and slightly to the right. And so often they would say, God, you are my shield, O Lord, as I'm moving forward and taking new ground. But here's what everyone in the Bible knew. The shield only worked when you're running and moving forward. When you're running back, when you're terrified and running away, when you're in fear... From those circumstances, you're not protected. So even though I don't like these circumstances, even though I wouldn't wish for these circumstances, God, I know that as long as I'm trusting you and moving forward with you, I can be courageous because you are with me and you're the one I'm doing this for. This last year, two years, just all of the challenges, special needs and my wife's two back surgeries, and I never knew how much fear was in me. The fear of the future, the fear of keeping it all together, the fear of, oh my goodness, can I be stretched on all these ends and make it work? The fear of just feeling lonely. That's one thing about being a caregiver, especially with a a child with autism. You're busy all the time and lonely at the exact same time because there's a lot of parallel play going on. I've just been amazed at the levels of fear I've had to deal with at all conceivable levels. 
And yet God has continued to grow me. I am not the same person I was last year or two years ago. I've learned courage in new ways, in fresh ways. And this song we're going to do next is a song I've probably listened to, I don't know, 50 to 100 times the last two years. To identify the difference between God who says, I am with you, I'm your shield, versus those false expectations that appear real. God's not for you. You're not going to make it. You can't make it another week or another month. So listen to this song, and I hope God will speak to you about the kind of courage that comes when you know that God is with you. Well, maybe you're going through a time of fear, and boy, no one would know it sitting around you. But you know you're facing deeper fears, or circumstantial fears, or fears of the unknown. And you want that kind of identity. You can root yourself in. I just want to pray courage over you. If you want to pray with me, maybe you just want to first invite God, the God of the King. God, give me an identity. God, forgive me for building my identity on things that are insecure. And Father, I invite you to give me a name above all names that cannot be taken away as a child of the King. And I invite your spirit of courage in me. And I just want to pray some promises over you as you're still praying. Father, you told us you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of liberty. And many have come in the door today and they are plagued with, with the weight of fear. So, Father, we just cast that off. We ask that you would tear out, claw out, you know, yank out the fangs and the, and the claws of fear that's... Uh, sitting on each person's shoulder or sitting on their heart or sitting on their chest, Father. We ask you to deliver them from fear. Father, you give them the promise to be strong and courageous, for you are with us. To be strong and very courageous, for you will never leave us or forsake us. That we will walk with you and not turn to the left or to the right, but to meditate, to ruminate on the promises you've given us, that we are not alone and we can be overcomers. Because you've overcome even the worst, death itself when you raised your son from the grave. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for our series on the Mighty Men. Next week, we're going to start a new series called Cornered. If you've ever felt like there's not enough time and you felt cornered and not enough margin in your life, we're going to spend four weeks diving into how to deal with the problem of not enough margin. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.